Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to a conversation or a series of conversations about presidential administration in a polarized era. Now, this seems a natural moment to talk about presidential administration. It is, after all, a year of presidential transition from one presidency to the next. It's also the 20th anniversary year of Elena Kagan's landmark article on presidential administration. And, of course, we live in a time where academic and policy debates about presidential administration have been energetic in recent years. So we thought it was a natural time to organize not just a conference on the subject, but also, several months ago, an academic roundtable where scholars presented a number of early draft papers, uh, which they will present today. The original roundtable, uh, the, the impetus for this whole conference, was actually the idea of our friend Chris Walker from Ohio State University. And so, Chris, why don't you step up and, and say a word of hello? I'm not going to beat Adam's introduction or his height, um, but um, I'm just so grateful that you're all here. Uh, this has been such a fun, especially with COVID, such a fun uh, opportunity for us to research papers and talk about this just just landmark paper that that now Justice Kagan wrote uh, when she was at Harvard. I just want to kind of just you know this this is the time and it's exciting uh, and it's particularly exciting to think about what she would write or how she would rewrite it today. And we, when we live in, I think, a much more polarized time. So that's all I've got to say. And I just want to say thank you for the Grace Center for sponsoring this, for putting it together to Jen and to Adam and to Tyler and the rest of the staff. And I'm looking forward to a great day, a great conversation to talk more about uh, the role of the presidency uh, in, in, in our, our modern governance. So as you can see in the program, we've got a, a variety of conversations through the day. The next panel, for example, will focus more squarely on Justice Kagan's paper. But we thought we'd start with sort of subtopic that really originated the, the broader conference, presidential administration and political polarization. And to moderate this conversation, we're so glad to be joined once again by a friend of the Gray Center, a familiar face in our programs, Melanie Marlowe. She's a senior associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Melanie, the floor is yours. It's really a pleasure to be here today. It's such a beautiful day and we're inside, but it's okay. Um, it's, it's really nice um, to be back in person and seeing you all here. I'm really grateful to the Gray Center as well, and I just want to throw um, a little connection here. My younger sister, when she was at what was then George Mason Law School, she was a Judge Rouse uh, assistant when she was writing an article on the public accounting he can do things. Okay. <laughs> and so uh, it will be fun to see you again today. Today, we have some really interesting papers for this panel. And they were fair, and I have to say they were really actually quite fun to read. Um, and it's a very timely topic. I saw a poll yesterday that came out of the University of Virginia. It said that it was looking at what Trump voters think and Biden voters think. So some of the things they said were, I've come to view elected officials of the other party as presenting a clear and present danger to American democracy. And so somewhat agree, strongly agree. Biden voters somewhat agree, 80%, 51% strongly agree. Trump voters, 84% somewhat agree, 57% strongly agree. I believe that Americans who strongly support the other party have become a clear and present danger to the American way of life. Biden voters, 75% somewhat agree. Trump voters, 78%. And then finally, the situation in America is such that I would favor the pers pe people from the opposing um, parties, states, red states or blue states, seceding from the union to form their own separate company. Biden voters, 41 percent. Trump voters, 52. 
And so to me, it's really important that we talk about um, partisanship and polarization um, and things that we can do about it. And what I like about these papers is that they are clear and succinct and they have some ideas about ways that there can be some possible reforms. And so I will turn it over. It's great to see Kevin in person. Nice to see you. <laughs> Michael, I don't think I've seen you probably for 15 years, so many years. Um, but it's very nice. I saw it probably two years ago. <laughs> but it's still nice to see everybody again. So here you go. Well, I want to thank the Gray Center and Adam and Chris for inviting me. It's a great opportunity here to talk about this new paper on presidential polarization. Okay, well, the polarization of American politics, as we heard, and as everyone knows, is obviously a very serious issue. And uh, there, there are two important questions about it that, that one can ask. Um, First, what, what contributes to polarization, and how could polarization be reduced? And in this article, John McGinnis and I argue that a significant contributor to polarization is presidential unilateralism, and that we could reduce polarization by moving away from unilateralism to political structures that require congressional consent. Unilateralism involves a government structure where the president has the power on his own to take actions that traditionally require the assent of Congress, such as passing regulations, initiating military action, or making international agreements. Allowing the president to unilaterally take these actions contributes to, polar, to polarization because it leads to more extreme actions. And we argue that more extreme actions are primary cause of polarization. But if these unilateral actions could only be taken with the concurrence of Congress, then the political parties would have to compromise, to, to, to negotiate more moderate compromises, which would reduce polarization. Okay, so that's the basic thesis here. Um, while everyone appears to agree that the nation is polarized, there's not full agreement on what polarization is. So we view it as a combination of a kind of sharp division between the parties on policy issues, a sharp division, and an us versus them mentality between the parties. So first, that sharp division on policy issues means that elections take on enormous importance because the loser will really lose big, especially in a world of unilateralism. This sharp division and the rational fear of, of, of losing leads to a, an us-versus-them mentality, with people viewing the other party not merely as opponents, but as a threat to the country who should be demonized, right? um, as the poll suggested. Okay, so one of the principal ways that unilateralism occurs is through congressional delegation of regulatory authority to the president. And this delegation leads to more extreme policies. You know, if regulations are enacted by the president and his agencies, then they'll reflect the president's policies, obviously. And presidents tend to be relatively extreme because they occupy more or less the median of their party. Somewhere in the middle of their, of their party. By contrast, if there were no delegation and regulation had to be enacted by Congress and the president together, it would be much more likely to be moderate. 
If there's divided government, which holds about three quarters of the time, a regulation enacted by Congress will certainly need to involve compromise, because which will bring the regulation closer to the median voter, not of the party, but of the country, much more central. Um, but even if there's not divided government, a regulation enacted by Congress is still likely to be more moderate due to factors such as the filibuster and the need of the majority party to protect its more moderate members who are from swing states. Now, in a, in a world where Congress was needed to enact re regulations, polarization would significantly decrease. The parties would need to compromise in order to get legislation passed. Thus, each, people of each party would not need to fear as much the election of a president from the other party, since its consequences would not be so significant. After all, they could just, there would be a compromise. Since they would not fear the other side so much, they would develop much, of a much less of an us-versus-them mentality. Okay, well, if delegations are a problem, then what can we do to cut back on them? Well, the most obvious solution here would be for the Supreme Court to hold that delegations of policymaking discretion to the executive are unconstitutional, um, more in line with the, with the Gundy case uh, or the... Justice Gorsuch dissent in the Gundy case. But there are other possibilities. One possibility is for Congress to pass a law such as the proposed RAINS Act, which would allow agencies to draft regulations but would not permit them to be promulgated without Congress approving them. If this procedure were applied only to major regulations and if it significantly limited congressional debate on these regulations, it could be feasibly applied to the most important regulations that agencies pass each year. Policy-making discretion of the agencies could also be constrained if Chevron and our deference were either eliminated or reduced. Chevron grants deference as to agency statutes, our grants deference as to agency regulations, and if both types of deference were reduced, agencies would have less discretion as to the meaning of the laws, and therefore less room to decide what policies to propose. So, so while my presentation is focusing on, on domestic matters, similar arguments could be made about military and foreign affairs. In both these areas, the president has either usurped certain powers or been delegated others, and the result, again, is, once again, extreme actions and polarization. Presidents take more extreme actions than they could if they were required to get congressional consent for their actions, and as a result, once again, people fear the other side, viewing them as threats to the country. Now, the original meaning of the Constitution requires congressional authorization to engage in offensive military actions. Congress must declare war. Um, and this requirement of congressional authorization means that the serious matter of starting a war requires some consensus support. And so a requirement of congressional authorization would block the most controversial military actions, permitting them, in most cases, only where there's some kind of bipartisan support. By contrast, if the president can act unilaterally, controversial 
Military actions can divide the country with political opponents seeking to end the action, and thereby making it even harder for the nation to succeed in the military action. We've all seen this over the years. It's, it's right in front of us. Um, the Constitution's original meaning also places strict limits, I think, on the president's ability to enter international agreements. The Constitution authorizes treaties, after all, only with the two-thirds ratification of the Senate. And while the Constitution does allow, I think, some executive agreements to be made without Congress's approval, these are quite limited and, and I think do not extend to those that are the supreme law of the land. Congressional executive agreements, where Congress has to um, approve or authorize it, have also been used, but such agreements, whatever their constitutionality, under the original meaning, at least require congressional support. Now, presidents have used a variety of justifications for all this unilateralism, and in recent years, the justifications have become even more aggressive. So we got Harold Coe and these kind of arguments that allow agreements where they accord with the policies set by Congress and statutes, even though those statutes neither expressly nor implicitly authorize the executive agreements. And once again, these executive agreements have the potential to create polarization because the agreements are far more likely to be controversial and extreme, much more so than if they had to secure the support of Congress. Now, what could we do about these unilateral presidential agreements? Um, well, they could be addressed through congressional action. Um, what we could do is we could pass a stricter and reform the War Powers Act that was both clearer and allowed unilateral military action only for a much shorter period than the 60-day limit now in the War Powers Resolution. Unilateral international agreements could also be constrained by framework legislation that denied domestic effect to all but a limited number of executive agreements. This is a, a pretty moderate proposal you can see here. Um, let me consider, just got a couple minutes left, let me consider one objection to my argument that uh, um, the commentator on the right has made in the past. Um, my argument assumes that the political parties can cooperate and compromise <laughs> in order to pass legislation. But it is, objective that this is, it is objected that this is not true. The parties are not simply willing to compromise. Instead, members of Congress opposed to the president's party will not be willing to compromise because they prefer to deny the president a victory that would enhance, enhance his chances of re-election. For the same reason, the president will veto initiatives coming from the Congress that would give the other party a victory. Thus, the parties would prefer to deny victories to the other side rather than to compromise and pass legislation. But I think this objection is mistaken. And I think it's based on a, a methodological error here. Because this is how the parties do in fact behave now under unilateralism, the objection assumes that's how they would behave under more consensus structures. 
But I don't think that's true, because the parties would then have different incentives under these two regimes. At present, at present, the president has widespread authority to enact the regulations that he favors. Thus, the president has no incentive to compromise with Congress because he can do it all on his own. And the opposing party in Congress cannot secure any improvement by compromising because it'll only make things worse. The president can already do it, so he's only going to go for a deal which will give him more authority. The best that the Congress can do is to hope to secure the presidency in the next election um, so that they and, and deny the president a victory here. But I think things would be quite different in a world where the president cannot, cannot adopt regulations on his own. In that world, the president and the governing party in Congress could not get much enacted without compromise. And if the parties refused to compromise, both special interest groups who wanted things out of the government and the general public who wanted some general reforms would become extremely frustrated and would put pressure on the parties that would not compromise. And I think this would lead to a change in their behavior lead to compromises. Well, in the end, as I say, I think moving from unilateralism to consensus structures would reduce polarization. Would lead, it would lead to less extreme results. It would lead to compromise and less fear of the other party. It's an important part of the cure for what ails us. Thank you. Great, great. Thanks, thanks, uh, Mike. Well, uh, it's um, it's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, thank you so much for hosting us. Uh, and I also want to thank many people in the audience. Gave me terrific uh, comments on our first round of of, of uh, this uh, kind of ongoing workshop. So th thanks for that as well. So I, I think the idea of hosting a conference 20 years after the publication of Justice Kagan's uh, paper, uh, Presidential Administration, is a terrific one, because uh, it provides, a, I think, a wonderful foil for thinking about what she got right in her paper and, and some of the dynamics that she was missing. And I think that's actually kind of my central theme, is I think that uh, uh, Justice Kagan's model captures a lot about what's been happening in uh, uh, the president's relationship to administration, uh, but it's not a complete model. Uh, it neglects uh, some important features of the president's relationship to administration. And I'm going to argue that part of what it neglects uh, is the way in which presidents use uh, administrative agencies to reach voters in ways that are not mediated through national policy. Uh, that is, it neglects electorally driven uh, non-policy uses of administration, which I call partisan administration. And I, I think I want to argue that, and argue in the paper that uh, partisan administration poses some distinctive uh, uh, challenges to democratic functioning. So given the theme of the conference of presidential administration and the age of polarization, I thought a good place to begin uh, would be to start with the way in which polarization plays a role in Justice Kagan's own paper. And uh, polarization is really at the heart of Justice Kagan's explanation for the rise of presidential administration. And I'll explain a little bit more what presidential administration uh, is for those of you who uh, ha haven't uh, read her article. So she, she, I think she can, does this in three basic steps. So polarization of the electorate is then reflected in polarization and division in Congress. That's step one. Um, as a result of increasing party division and polarization, uh, Justice Kagan argues that it became increasingly difficult for presidents to achieve national policy level change 
through legislation. And it's, it would be hard to be alive in D.C. today and not think that, that proposition holds some truth. At the same time, the expectations for presidential performance and the assumptions that presidents are responsible for the functioning of government hasn't gone away. So, in fact, maybe in our uh, intense media environment, it's actually heightened. So let me just quote Justice Kagan, who kind of brings these all together in one sentence. She says, the more the demands on the president's are, president uh, for policy leadership increase, the less and the less he can meet those demands through legislation, the greater his incentive to tap the alternative resource of supply deriving from his position as head of the federal bureaucracy. Joining uh, uh, hands with Mike and John's paper, and it, polarization is leading to maybe uh, greater unilateralism. So in this origin story uh, I, I, of the rise of presidential administration, I think we can see a lot about the focus and limits of her model. Uh, Justice Kagan's focuses on the president's interest in achieving national policy level change. That is, however he can do, he or she can do that, uh, if not through legislation, then through another, uh, another means. The image here is really of a good faith president, even a kind of wonkish president, right? right? Trying to, frustrated by Congress and looking for a way to achieve policy change. Right. Uh, and so now I think this is a highly successful model. It captures a lot of what we've seen in the last 20 years uh, of administration. It captures the presence, increased insertion of authority uh, th- uh, over agency rulemaking through OIRA, uh, some occasional directive authority, management of agency uh, enforcement priorities. And, uh, and certainly it's evident in the many flip flops we see uh, in, in, in administrative action. And indeed, I think presidential administration has become almost a shorthand for the president's relationship to, to, to administration. Uh, but what I want to argue in my paper, or what I argue in my paper, is that it's, it's, it's an incomplete one. It's an incomplete one, I want to say, in two different ways. First is that presidents use administrative agencies in ways that don't involve the achievement of national policy. Right? And the second and closely rated is that national policy doesn't exhaust the president's interest in elections. It's not, the president doesn't whole, only try to promote his own interest in elections through national policy. It sort of almost reminds me of, you know, of someone trying to woo another person, and maybe I would be uh, guilty of this, by proposing a great idea about, say, Medicare. Right? You, don't only, you don't always uh, woo people through national, national policy. Uh, okay. In other words, presidents use agencies to advance their own election prospects in ways that are not seeking to make national political changes. And these, uh, these changes, I argue in the paper, fall wholly outside of Justice Kagan's model, right? They reflect a darker side of presidential governance. Uh, and I think they also have a connection to polarization. So polarization is not merely creating division in Washington. Uh, it's also making the, electric, the electorate less responsive to policy change. And if presidents understand that, then they might say, uh, think that the, this, the, the sole way of convincing voters is not necessarily through snazzy new policy proposals uh, 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 promulgated by administrative agencies. So in the paper, I identify what I think are three pathways of this uh, non-policy uh, but electorally driven uses of administration. Um, the first is uh, targeting uh, the distribution of federal funds uh, and federal grants to specific states. 
the second is the use of government resources for campaign purposes. And the third is the use of uh, uh, the federal government uh, to influence the machinery of elections. So let me just talk very briefly uh, about, about each of these at a pretty high level uh, of detail. So presidents, so the first one is the president's use of uh, uh, d- direction of uh, funds to states of particularly salient political interest. So presidents have some control uh, through OMB over how appropriated funds are apportioned, and they have some control over the timing of that apportionment. Uh, and some con- uh, ability to transfer and reprogram funds, and they have similar levels of control over grant criteria and the timing of federal grants. And so you might ask, well, what, are the eff- what effects have these controls had? And over the last decade, there's been a, a, a robust uh, political science literature in the field of distributed politics that have documented disproportions in federal spending uh, that are targeted toward states of particularly salient electoral interest. I just want to highlight two different findings from these studies. One is that states that are co-partisans with the presidents, uh, that is, and different studies uh, take different measures, whether that's two senators versus one, more representatives from the state or uh, a a co-state governor, um, uh, uh, receive a disproportionate share of federal spending. Uh, and I think the idea here is the president is directing funding to shore up uh, uh, those, uh, those co-partisan states. The second finding is that swing states uh, receive a disproportionate share of federal funding and are particularly near and approaching federal elections. I think the idea here is, is a pretty intuitive one that he wants to uh, curry favor the swing states. So these are... Um, so the, these findings, I think, uh, the, these findings, I think, help to break down the idea, the myth of uh, a nationalist uh, president, uh, that the elect- in electoral terms, the president is beholden to these particular states, and so will use his powers over federal spending to direct towards those states. Um, so the second pathway is that presidents use uh, the resources of government to support their campaign. Many of these are violations of the Hatch Act, and we could kind of paint them on on, on a spectrum from overt coordination uh, in the White House with the campaign, right, to uh, use of government resources, uh, whether that's uh, fundraising through the White House or, say, uh, holding the Republican National Convention at the White House for campaign purposes, uh, to uh, repeated uh, political endorsement by uh, senior-level uh, staff. Those are, uh, you know, the, the latter is, is violations of the Hatch Act. So those are other uh, categories of uh, purposeful use of administration. There are means by which the president uses the resources of government to promote his election prospects, and they feature nowhere in Kagan's model of uh, presidential administration. Uh, so the third uh, and probably most uh, uh, dangerous, in a way, is the president's efforts to influence the actual machinery of elections. So I'm not arguing that presidents can't take positions on election policy. Different presidents have different views about the scope, say, of the uh, Voting Rights Act and how it should be enforced. Uh, I'm not talking about those policy positions. I'm saying that presidents also engage in efforts to influence uh, the outcome of elections that don't have a policy uh, uh, 
impact. And, and my examples for, for those focus more on uh, the events uh, in, in the Trump administration post the November 2020 election, where we saw uh, the use of government resources uh, to influence both the counting of votes at the state level, as well as uh, uh, how the federal government was responding to those things. So, and that, that's a third pathway of government influence, which is count, tinkering with the counting and processing of votes. So stepping back, I want to say these three pathways, spending, the use of government resources for campaign purposes, and intervening in machinery of elections uh, constitute a distinct form of administration. They're not presidential administration, as Kagan identifies it, uh, because they are not making national policy, right? But they're uses of administrative power. Moreover, I think they're worth thinking about collectively because they pose distinctive threats to fair play and democratic process. Partisan administration, in this sense, represents a pathology of democratic processes. It's an attempt to use uh, the authority of office to entrench oneself uh, in office. I don't think uh, uh, Justice Kagan's ideas in presidential administration have the resources and a vocabulary to recognize the threat of these uses of administration. She's interested in whether there's a statutory or constitutional authority to authorize a president's action. That's an interesting question of which many people in this room have engaged, right? But that's not a vocabulary that's useful in identifying these particular threats to democratic processes. So let me just close uh, uh, by, by asking the question, well, can, can partisan administration be checked without the more significant pushback uh, required uh, to push back on presidential administration. Uh, that is, and, and my inclination is to say yes, and in partly that's pragmatic and hopeful uh, because I think partisan administration is more dangerous uh, uh, in many respects than presidential administration. And so, uh, and I think that, that part of what I want to say why uh, uh, there is a possibility reform here is because the tools of partisan administration are more easily identified and they're more isolated and they're more limited than the tools of presidential administration. So, if the problem is presidential pork barrel spending at the margin, uh, the answer may be greater constraint on uh, OMB and greater transparency about how agencies' uh, funds are allocated at the agency level. Uh, if the problem is the support and encouragement of senior uh, members of the administration to um, to promote the president's campaign, I think the solution can be uh, strengthening the protections of the Hatch Act. That's a more limited uh, legislative agenda. Uh, and if the problems are intermingling and using the force of office with regard to the machinery of elections, that, that I think is, is a more difficult problem, but I think it could be one that certainly reinforcing the protections to uh, um, inspector generals could support. Right, inspector generals uh, uh, both monitor and deter uh, uh, forms of uh, inappropriate behavior in the executive branch. So, uh, overall, I'm suggesting that we should start thinking about these non uh, non policy but electorally different driven uh, uses of administration as a distinctive problem that's emerged that's been with us all along, but it's particularly salient uh, today. Great, thank you. Okay. Any, any comments you... Yeah, uh, my job is supposed to be to, to, to poke holes in everything has just been said and uh, by, by both Michael and Kevin, and, and I, I'm always delighted to do that. It's a lot of fun. Uh, uh, so I debated the question of whether to reinvigorate or really invigorate for the first time uh, 
the uh, non-delegation doctrine for about 45 years now, and I, I, you know, I know all the, the, the standard arguments. Uh, Congress lacks the time, the expertise, and the foresight required to do a decent job of uh, addressing the issues on the merits. Uh, Ken Arrow did a good job of explaining to us why uh, a lot of these uh, policy disputes cannot be resolved through uh, any democratic mechanism. Uh, uh, it's harder than hell to find any sensible standard that might uh, replace the, the, the extremely weak, intelligible principle standard that we have now. Uh, and, and there's solid evidence that Congress uh, usually makes horrible mistakes when it actually tries to do this. I, I, I've got a long list of examples, but I'd start with the National Natural Gas Policy Act of 1978 and the Power Plant and Industrial Fuel Use Act of 1981. I defy anyone to find an agency who's ever done anything as stupid as those two statutes. Uh, uh, but all of my, I mean, all these traditional arguments still apply, but they've been overtaken by the conditions that have been created by our massive and increasing pol- political polarity. My, Michael uh, accurately anticipated uh, the, the core of my my response. Uh, he, he, he talks about um, the benefits of forcing Congress to enact statutes that reflect decisions made on a bipartisan basis rather than statutes that delegate broad discretion to agencies. Congress has not taken either of those actions in a long, long time. I don't see any possibility Congress will be able to take either of those actions any time in the near future. I propose major changes in the way that we uh, choose candidates for office and major changes in the way that we choose the leaders of the House and Senate that might have some chance of getting us back to uh, the good old days when we could have the, 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 the debate about uh, this on, on, on something other than a theoretical basis. But uh, uh, I, I think they're unlikely to be, be made, and, and I can't even be sure they, they'd work. So what, what do we have today? What we have is agencies that are t- attempting to take actions based on delegations of power that Congress made between 30 and 80 years ago. <laughs> We're not talking about you know, something that Congress did last year or last decade or two decades ago. We're talking about things that they're, uh, and, and certainly nothing that they've done on a bipartisan basis in, in recent time. Uh, so, you know, they're saying, well, we, we've got to create these incentives for, for, for Congress to act and Gosh, if we create these incentives, then we'll get a completely different. Uh, uh, you know, that, that's the equivalent to saying if, if we put a billion dollars at the end of the hundred-yard dash and, and tell uh, Dick Pierce that if he runs it in ten seconds, he's got it. Pierce will go out and, and really start training hard, and so he can. I'm mean, not going to happen. Uh, that there is no possibility of, of uh, in today's political conditions, uh, bipartisan action or broad delegation of power to the president. Not going to happen. Uh, so, uh, now I do think we're going to get a test of, uh, uh, uh Michael's theory uh, pr- pretty darn soon because, uh, I, while I don't think the court's going to go the non-delegation, uh, route because there are too many problems with it, I think what the court's going to do and has already started to do is interpret broad, uh, mandates very narrowly. And, and so I think we're going to very soon be in a situation where uh, presidents are, are, are simply not able to take any significant action in areas like climate change or immigration. Uh, and, and so uh, then we'll find out, okay, does Congress respond? And, and I'll bet a large sum of money that uh, I'm right and Mike's wrong that it's not going to happen. 
<laughs> the answer will be nothing will get done. Uh, now, I, I had less time to think about Kevin's uh, 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 paper, uh, so my reactions there are more tentative, I, I have to say, but uh, uh, here, here they are. Uh, um, the, the three problems that he describes, I, I think, are endemic to all democracies at all times. I mean, that's, that, that's the way democracies work. Uh, and and uh, leaders of democracies behave that way all the time. And you can't really completely disentangle it from policy preferences. If, if you don't get reelected, you can't implement your policies. So, so uh, it, it, it depends on the individual president as to what drives him or her to, to uh, engage in these uh, actions. But uh, for, in many cases, it's they're, they're, they're policy-driven. I really feel strongly about this policy. Therefore, I want to be reelected. Uh, now, the, the, there are certainly some horrible examples in each of the three areas, uh, and Kevin refers to them in the paper and referred to some of them briefly uh, uh, in his oral presentation. I, I think that they're all illegal now, uh, and uh, uh, so there's not much we can do about it in terms of statutes. Uh, uh, so what can we do? Well, uh, we, we could try to get better enforcement of, of the statutes that we have on the books. It turns out to be, I think, horrendously difficult to figure out how to get uh, better enforcement of, of statutes that are designed to uh, regulate the behavior of the president. Uh, that's just a really, really hard task to, to undertake. And, and, and I'm skeptical about the, uh, uh, Kevin's uh, proposed ways of, of addressing them. One, one is, uh, increase transparency. Uh, transparency is a real mixed bag. Uh, transparency can be very useful in some contexts and just horribly destructive in, in, in others. I mean, in this city, there are two kinds of meetings, photo ops and meetings behind closed doors. In, in photo ops, uh, all, all you do is you, you uh, put out a few seven-second sound bites in hopes that some media will pick them up and, uh, and give, give them to your constituents. They, they have virtually no relationship to your actual position on anything. Uh, and then uh, you only find out somebody's actual positions when you close the door and you get people talking candidly and say, here's what I'm willing to do if you're... You can't have those discussions in public. And if you, if you get to go too far with transparency, you know, that's the end of all deal-making. Uh, we don't have much bipartisan deal-making now. I, I'm actually a, a dues-paying member of, of no labels. Uh, the, the, a group of senators, uh, uh, relatively moderate senators, to the extent there are any more, uh, who uh, get together and, and try to cut deals. And, and God, it's so hard already. But I mean, they're fighting the, the, the leadership of the House and Senate of both parties. The leadership hates them. They hate to see anybody doing things. This, this, this. And, and, and so uh, they, they do everything in their power to, to uh, make it impossible for them to engage in any kind of, of, of compromise. Uh, uh, nothing would be more effective in stopping all deal-making than making everything transparent. Uh, uh, then, you know, another proposal is you got is an independent Hatch Act inspector. I, I cannot think of any, uh, any way of doing that that would be both constitutional and effective. Uh, I, 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 if there's some way, I, I'd be interested in hearing about it. But uh, uh, you know, the, the whole idea of, of independent anything, 
I, I think it's just pretty much dead as a doornail. Uh, and and uh, I, ironically, I think uh, Joe Biden uh, put the last uh, uh, nails in the coffin uh, the, in the last couple of months with, with a combination of actions that, that he, he took. That, that when you combine that with the Supreme Court's uh, decision making in the area, that it, it's gone. Uh, and, and so, you know, and that gets me to think, well, OK, who, who do you suppose that President Trump, somebody I don't particularly trust, uh, uh, that, that, that President Trump would appoint as the independent patch act inspector? Yeah. Yeah, who's who's going to appoint the, the Constitution? There's really no doubt it's going to be appointed by the president. I, I don't even trust. I mean, I rather like Joe Biden, but I, 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 I don't trust him that much. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, so, you know, we might be able to make some incremental improvements in present law in in in, in these areas, but but I, I really worry that we're running up uh, running big risks under the, the the one law that is unbreakable and that exists at all times, and and, and that's the law of unintended consequences. Uh, uh, and I think immediately of all of those wonderful. Uh, 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 reforms of the political system that we implemented in the late 60s and, and, and early 70s and the extent to which they are among the causes of the complete impotence of the legislative branch of government today. I mean, the, the, just as a starting point, uh, banning earmarks. Okay? Yeah, earmarks are ugly. Grease is ugly. You can't run an engine without grease. You can't cut deals without earmarks. Uh, uh, you know, and the, so, so we did a whole lot of things that were very well intended and are having horrendous uh, uh, effects. And, and, and so that's my fear uh, whenever I look at proposals to make changes in this area. And, I, and you know, my bottom line is when, when it comes to things like this, that there is no substitute for electing people with character. Uh, and, and, and I hope the public does that. And I don't have confidence that the public will do that. And that causes me to be a bit concerned about our future. Responses. Okay. Okay. Well, well thanks so much, uh, Dick, for, the, for those <laughs> helpful um, criticisms. Um, I, I guess I want to sort of draw a distinction. I mean, I, I, I take it that sort of Dick's argument here is really um, you know, this is just unrealistic, what, what I'm sort of arguing in terms of these consensus structures. And I guess I, I want to sort of divide up that, this unrealism, if you will, between two different portions of it, right? So on the one hand, you might say, um, are we going to be able to get to a world where, are the, where we have these consensus structures, where we've eliminated delegation, for example, or we, we put real limits on the president's international and foreign affairs powers, right? So, so getting those consensus structures. And then the, the second question is, if we had those consensus structures, what would be the response on the part of the president and, and the Congress? Now, I, I, just, I guess I want to say that all that I've argued is about that second of those points. If we had a world where you know, presidents couldn't regulate on their own. You know, they were they were basically um, implementing you know constrained policy decisions that the Congress had made. Um, 
how would the Congress and the president respond? So, so that, that's where my, my argument is. Now, I, I think it's a, a very fair point to say, well, even if you think the world would change once we had those consensus structures and, and people's behavior would be different, how are we going to get to those consensus structures? Um, and I, I think that's a fair point. I didn't say anything about that. Um, you could say things like, yeah, you know, the, the RAINS Act would, would, would be a big change, <laughs> but um, the Congress is not going to pass the RAINS Act. And, you know, in, in, in enforcing a, a, a strict non-delegation doctrine, a really strict one, um, would significantly change things, but, you know, we'll, we'll believe it, the, we'll believe the Supreme Court will do that when we see it. So, so, um, Th- those are, I think, the, the the very difficult questions about how do we get from here to there, and um, so I just want to distinguish those from how the 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 Congress would would behave. Um, a lot of how the Congress would behave differently under these consensus structures, I think, would involve responses. So, so who would we get as the leaders of Congress um, in a world where you needed compromise? Compromising politicians. Those are the ones who would. Who would uh, start to gain power? We wouldn't have the the sort of AOCs and the and the bomb throwers um, who were very good at you know energizing the the one side or the other side. Um, we get people like the I don't know the old Joe Biden <laughs> who could make a deal with the other side, right? So um, I think there's a lot of you know things would look quite a bit different in that world. How we get to that world? That's a good question. Kevin. Great. Uh, it's always a pleasure to hear Dick speak. Uh, and I was anticipating uh, you know, his robust remarks uh, in advance here. Uh, and I didn't know exactly what he was going to say, but I knew it was going to be good. Uh, and so um, let me just highlight a couple of things. I think uh, uh, he puts his finger on a super hard problem, right, which is the problem of enforcing statutes that regulate the president. Right? That's, that's a super hard problem. And there's not an easy solution to that problem. Uh, and I think he's also right. Uh, you know, I, I wrote it down as a quote here: "Independent anything is dead as a doornail." Right? You know that 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 that's going to make that problem even harder. So, and I guess maybe the 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 one set of thoughts I'm I'm having about that as well. It, it, yes, uh, enforcing statutes that regulate the president are super hard, and maybe where we should be particularly focused on them if we can find an institution to do it or the public to do it, is where the president's engaged in politics without policy, where the president's engaged in uh, doing things that don't have a policy, con- don't have an, uh, an announced policy content. I think that's where we're more likely to see the president doing things for the, the kind of uh, maybe darker side of partisanship than we're willing to embrace as a general matter in our republic. So that would be maybe a, a broad direction, but I agree that's a, that's a really, it's a difficult problem which my paper uh, stumbles into. Um, I think that the, and I've got some other ideas about that for a different, different paper, but um, the, um, w- maybe one other thought uh, would be that um, it, you know, on transparency, at least here, now you, again, there's a question of who's gonna enforce the transparency. Uh, that the kind of, at least the kind of expenditures I'm talking about in OMB 
are, I think, less a matter of deal making, less a matter of deal making, more a matter of uh, of how the president's using administration. So some of those concerns go away, but I, I certainly think that some of them are still present. So it's, uh, it's not, not a complete response to that. So, uh, so there's just a few thoughts in response, but thank you so much for the comment. Dick, anything else, anything else that you would like to say? I really can't think of anything else. Uh, uh, you know, the, the, I, I, well, I guess in, in response to one point that, that Michael made about uh, 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 you know, who would get elected in this, uh, I, I don't think a damn thing would change in terms of who, who would get elected because the starting point there is a combination of two things, safe seats in both the House and the Senate, about 80% of seats are, are, are safe. Uh, uh, so what that means is the only thing you need to worry about is the primaries. And, and the way the primaries work is uh, if you are a uh, Democrat, the, your only safe course of action is go left and stay far left because all the threats in the primaries are going to come from, from, from your left. And if you're a Republican, just the opposite. Go right and stay right. And, and since that's uh, 80% of the seats are uh, determined through these party-based primaries, I, I don't see that changing unless we make big changes in the way that we uh, choose people for office. I, I don't think changing the incentives uh, of, of uh, uh, the, and then the incentives of, of, of the current leaders of the House and the Senate are, are, are also pretty easy to identify. You got to you got to stay popular with the majority. So as long as the majority was selected through that process, uh, you, you wind up with a majority of Democrats on the far left and a majority of Republicans on the far right. And if you want to remain the leader of either the House or the Senate, either party, uh, that's, that's, that's the way you're going to have to go. And compromise is not, uh, it, it turns out these days, uh, the, the people. Okay. The people who do the voting in the primaries as opposed to the general elections, big, big difference in those two groups. Uh, uh, the people who do the voting in these party-based primaries, they do not want compromise. That's the last thing they want. <laughs> okay, any, any last replies from you? Okay, uh, I'm going to throw it out to the audience. Before I do, I just want to say there's a fair amount of social science that's in these papers, but it is not scary social science. And as someone who does not have a good relationship with numbers, it's all very succinctly summarized, and uh, you will walk away feeling smarter having read uh, these papers. So I'll throw it to you for some questions, and if there are none, I have a few of my own, including one now for Dick. But yes? Before you mentioned... Uh, a role of Congress in the agency rulemaking process. How does your proposal differ from the Congressional Review Act and Congress's role under that act? Oh, um, well, basically, under, let's say, if we're just talking about the RAINS Act, um, agencies, if, if we had, you know, a major regulation you know, however one de defined it, $100 million or whatever effect, um, the agency could go through the same process it now currently does in order to, to create the regulation, but it could not be enforced without congressional authorization for it. So um, Congress would vote, you know, at least on the, in the RAINS Act version, um, up or down on the regulation. And so you would need, you know, basically both houses and then, of course, the president's concurrence um, to, to enforce the regulation. Without that, if one of the houses did 
did, did not go ahead and, 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 and do so, it would have no effect. I'm glad you raised that question because I think it's very important to focus on the similarities between the CRA and the, and, and the RAINS Act. Uh, uh, the, the, the CRA is, is utterly irrelevant except in a certain set of circumstances, okay? That is where you've got a brand new president of a, the opposite party and he also has a majority of, of, of both houses of Congress. So that's happened so far twice in 10, uh, well, three now, but, but uh, that, that's it. Uh, it, it. Otherwise, the CRA is absolutely dead. There's no point in trying to do it. Reigns Act would have the same effect, except the circumstance would be different. The only way that, that any president could be, be able, any agency could ever get a, a, a rule through in today's conditions under the, the, the Reigns Act is during that period, which typically exists in the first two years of, of, a, of a presidential administration, where the, the, the president's party controls both the House and the Senate. Otherwise, you know, we, we, we have an environment where uh, somebody from, the, from one party pops up and says, good morning. Uh, everybody from the other party automatically says, no, it's not. Uh, and and uh, uh, so now that, that, that's the way the Reigns Act would, would, would function. So it would, in, in that sense, be very similar to the CRA. It would function. And even then, <laughs> as we know today very well, uh, even if you've got a majority of both houses, uh, at least among the Democrats, you got you got to figure out how to how to uh, get them all together. Because if you got a majority these days, it's not going to be the kind of. You know, there used to be some times when there were like two thirds majorities, and that's I think all history. Uh, and so you're talking about one and two and three vote margins, and so you know a, a single Republican senator can block the repeal of the Affordable Care Act. A single Democrat can block. Uh, anything that that Biden wants to do, uh, so I, I think that would be the range. That nothing would happen except in those circumstances, and even in those circumstances, it would be very difficult to get it through uh, both the House and the Senate. So, with the Congressional Review Act, I mean, wh- why is it irrelevant in most circumstances? The reason it's irrelevant is the president enacts the regulation that he wants, and then if the Congress wants to, even if both houses of Congress were controlled by the other party, uh, if the Congress wanted to, to eliminate it, of course, the president would veto it. Absolutely. But I think that's a different world than a world where the president can't enact that regulation, <laughs> right? So, so now we've got nothing, right? So the president's supporters wanted something, um, and now they've got nothing to do. And the, and the question is, would they still behave in the same way? No, um, I, I mean, they'll do it for a while, but, but what, what eventually happens is there's a significant demand for policy change. Some of it is, is sort of good and, and, and some of it is bad. And if you don't get that policy change through, through unilateralism, uh, the only way to get it would be through compromises. Now, uh, we once had a conversation. I don't know if you remember it, Dick. I, I pointed out to you, I said, you know, in, in this, and this was some years ago, but, but not that many, um, you know, they, they, they amended the, you know, bipartisan amendment of the Toxic Substances Control yeah. Act. And I asked you about it. I said, so, so how that happened? He said, well, they weren't really, you know, and was, both sides didn't care that much about the, about the, the objections of the other side. Um, but there we had it. You know, now it didn't make news. It was in 30 years. <laughs> right. 30 years. Right. In, 
Exactly. But the, the point is because you don't need that. You just get regulations and act on that. You want a government but, that only acts every 30 years. Well, okay. <laughs> that's, that's a, in, a, in a world with the unilateral structures, of course that's what you're going to see. The question is what you would see if you didn't have those unilateral structures. Uh, Chris. Great. This, this has been really fun. I, I have a question for Kevin. I, I, mean, I, I think your paper does, does like really important just analytical work of separating out policy presidential administration from election you know, presidential administration or partisan. And, and, I, I, and I'm not as gloomy as, as Dick is on this. And I, and I kind of wonder, I mean, in some ways, how much of this can you kind of package and sell as a voluntary measure that parties adopt or that, that presidencies adopt? Or how much of this I mean, what role could internal administrative law play within the White House on that front, too? And I kind of wonder, is there a way to kind of sell it that way? I, I have seen the Biden administration already adopt some measures internally with respect to regulatory policymaking, shifting to rulemaking away from guidance or away from, from adjudication to make major policy. And I wonder if this is something similar that you could package and sell as, hey, it's not that Congress has to require this or something like that, but it's something that any president who's running, anyone who's running for president would want to adopt the set, the set of package, you know, this package of, of reforms in order to, to be a more legitimate president in the eyes of the public or something like that. Chris, that's a great, uh, that's a great suggestion. In a way, you could almost imagine uh, through a presidential administration and maybe in, work with some NGOs kind of developing a set of, you know, kind of best practices which are not meant to be terribly aggressive. They're meant to be kind of minimal best practices, which, is, which exclude the worst parts of what I'm calling partisan administration. And then there would be at least a, a possibility of, will you pre-commit to this? Will you pre, would each new administration pre-commit to this? Almost the ABA maybe could, could develop something like this. Would you pre-commit to this? And it would create at least some pressure and dialogue about those kinds of practices as and, and maybe help to develop them slowly as norms, and then that because I think you know the way Dick's point is if if we're looking for formal enforcement, that's going to be that's that's a challenging problem. But if we're looking for kind of build up of norms where there's a, a, a whole bunch of stakeholders to hold accountable, I think there might be some more progress. So maybe that's a, a sort of public private kind of collaboration there uh, might be might be interesting, and then. And then if it got going, maybe we would restore some of the sort of norms that we, you know, I, you know, I don't know to what extent this is a restoration or a recreate or, or creation. I, mean, I don't need to go historical, but I, but I think that's a great suggestion. So thanks for, thanks for thinking about that. I think it could actually be a pretty powerful role for thinking about what are the core norms that have to do with the sort of nonpartisan administration. But, but it, of course, Everything the administration does has a partisan purpose, and that's fine. But but these extreme forms of partisan per, uh, administration that I'm that I'm talking about. So thank, thanks so much for the thought. That's a great yeah, Chris. You know, I, I mean, I agree with Kevin on that. that that's, that's promising, and, and particularly promising in this administration, given the way that Biden thinks and acts. Uh, I, I thinking back to, uh, to another recent administration, there is. But there's another version of this, and I think we're going to find more and more, learn more and more about this version that took place during the Trump administration, where uh, if you have a president who, if you ever express disagreement, uh, you're fired, uh, you really have a, a different kind of situation. And so uh, I think we'll learn that many, many people in the Trump administration uh, 
did have, did buy into our traditional norms and acted in ways that the president never detected that, that uh, 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 avoided some of the most extreme bad behavior. It's not a very pretty version of it, but it's, I think, another way it can function, and, and it is better than not functioning. <laughs> Julian. Thanks, and thanks to all of you guys for this great conversation. I wanted to ask a question that I struggle with in thinking about um, uh, uh, the relationship between the scope of delegated authority um, in the modern you know, American state and the problems that it both creates and seeks to address. Because I really struggle with a content-neutral theory of like, if you think about it on the one hand, presidential bulldozering, ignoring everything in Congress, forgetting any effort towards compromise, and on the other hand, congressional obstructionism, trying to make the president fail at all costs, there's good bulldozering and there's bad good bulldozering. There's good obstruction and there's bad obstruction. And it, it depends entirely, at least from, okay, I don't want to make the strong claim. It feels to me like it depends entirely on the content of the policy at issue. If the policy is like unmitigated evil, I am so glad that there's obstructionism. If the obstructionism is simply designed to make the administration fail at all costs, I'm pretty glad there's bulldozering. And so I really struggle to step back and say, here's my unified theory of whether delegation is bad or good. And I'd just love to hear your guys' thoughts on that. Well, I mean, whenever you're talking about process, you know, the, the question is, so, so we establish a new process, and then the question is what gets run through it, right? And there are forces, um, uh, knaves or fools, right? People who are, you know, do, do things, bad things, either because they, they've got a bad intent <laughs> or because they don't understand that they're, they're bad things. But, but, but in any way, there are forces leading to, to sort of bad proposals, and there are forces leading to good proposals. So, so when you make a sort of process argument, you're basically saying, look, I think the, the relative percentage of good stuff to bad stuff will be greater under this alternative process. So if, even if we were to sort of take something as, as um, so ordinary as, as democracy, right? Democracy is going to produce some bad stuff, but the, the argument for democracy is going to be, well, it's going to be a, a better mix of, of, of good stuff compared to, let's say, the alternatives. Um, so uh, you're abs- I mean, I feel the same way. I think probably everybody feels the same way that, that, that you know, depending on the, on, you know, that whatever process we have, it's not going to be perfect. But I, but I think that's the kind of argument you're looking to, which is that um, uh, is this going to be, on average, lead to better um, outputs here? And that's the kind of argument that you need to make to focus in on the process. Kevin. Yeah, I might just jump on this, which is you, 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 that's, that's a hard problem. And I guess the way I think about it is delegation, to some extent, is inevitable. Right. I think Congress wants it and a certain amount of delegation is inevitable. And so we can think about the checks in government coming either uh, in part through Congress and in part through the checks that we have developed in, in administrative structures, both internal administrative law as well as external administrative law. And those provide a ca- counterweight here. So I guess I feel like we're not going to avoid uh, delegation and we're, we're going to have um, that. That's going to be part of our system. And then we just have to make sure we have the right balance, which is tricky, about the external, what's the scope and measure of judicial review, what's the scope and measure of transparency, those kinds of things as counterweights 
to whatever sort of deliberation was missing in Congress. Okay. I echo the uh, thank you for the great presentation. In the 20 years since Kagan wrote presidential administration, have independent agencies proven effective at moderating uh, polarization, this flip-flopping mm. of policy? I'm not aware of any empirical work that's been done on that. Do you guys know of any? Uh, I think there has been some, but I, uh, I was referring to one of our audience members. But the, um, I, I think there's one sense in which agency independence is less, uh, less important in some ways than you might think formally, right? Which is that the president gets to select the chair in most cases. Often there is turnover, uh, that there still is uh, significant control through uh, DOJ's enforcement powers and through litigation in the Supreme Court. Now, that kind of moderates and brings administrative agencies closer. Those are things that bring them closer to executive agencies. Uh, but I don't know, and there may be studies about whether the extent to which independent agencies really, how different do they look, right, in, in terms of their you know, how political or, or, or on other dimensions. So that's a, it's a great question. If you're talking about uh, the, the multi-member headed agencies, and we now know from the Supreme Court, that's the only kind that even conceivably could be, be independent. Uh, um, then I, 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 there are certainly differences. One difference is it, it's much easier for such an agency to basically go out of existence for years at a time. That, that, that has happened with considerable frequency over the last 15 years. Again, partly, largely attributable to, to, uh, uh, political polarity that, that uh, you, you just can't get enough people confirmed uh, to, to, to uh, constitute a quorum, and, and hence this agency only exists on paper. It has no power to do anything, and that can then happen to an independent agency. That, that really can't happen to a, a single-headed agency because we've got the Vacancies Act and all sorts of other ways of putting somebody else in that position. Uh, and uh, the, the other thing is that so that if you look at what is happening, what's been happening at the Federal Trade Commission over the last months, uh, I, I think that is uh, pretty indicative of, of what the general patterns of behavior. Basically, three to two, three to two, three to two, three to two. Okay. So uh, does that temper? Well, maybe because you, you do have uh, ha have to contend with the the. The fiery descents that say uh, you know bad things about what you've done, and 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 uh, uh, maybe that has some limiting effect on on the the chair who usually is able to do what uh, Lena Khan has has been doing, and just three two three two three two. Uh, uh, does that limit? Knowing her personality, I don't think it has any effect at all. But there are others who might be affected by that. So. Um... So I, I quite agree. Most of the time, you, you've got these three, two, you've got presidential majorities and, and um, you know, control from the chair to a certain extent. But at least as a theoretical matter, and I, and I think along the lines that, that Dick suggests here, um, you know, imagine, you know, 
when you've got these bipartisan agencies, you've got people who from the other political parties sort of in the inside. <laughs> and that ought to matter. It ought to matter in terms of sort of, you know, um, you know, placing limits on, on what the agencies can, can be up to. I mean, just imagine, I'm, I'm, I'm not suggesting it as a, a constitutional um, reform, but just imagine if the Justice Department were, were sort of run by, you know, five people, you know, two of whom were, were from the other political party. Um, uh, you know, it, I think it would, things would look quite a bit different, you know, because, um, and, and, and so the fact that at the highest levels, all the people are from one party and then they can work out these ideas and, <laughs> um, uh, you know, talk in the closed meetings uh, about these things would look a quite, might look quite a bit differently if, 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 if you had a bipartisan structure. Maybe our last question, so go ahead. So just thanks again for these papers, and it's been great to see them evolve. Just maybe two very small questions, one for Michael, one for Kevin. Kevin, this is a nitpicky question, but I kept thinking, what's the difference between presidentialism and presidential administration in the context of partisan administration? Because the historical question, right, the fact that the practices that you're identifying may in fact have recurred previously make me wonder, I think you're right that Kagan leaves them out of her piece, but especially when it comes to things like directing funding or trying to influence the electoral process, isn't that just part of what the presidency does? And if it's about presidentialism, not presidential administration, to what extent do we care that it's partisan administration as opposed to just a pathological future of the partisan presidency? And then for Michael, this is just a question about institutional design. It seems like part of the reason to shift back towards Congress as opposed to the president is to get away, as you were describing before, from the um, distortion that comes from the primary process in picking the president in particular. But then it made me wonder about the institutional distortions that are built into Congress. So is the reason that we want to go to Congress just because we have representation of both parties there and therefore the need for some kind of bipartisanship? Or is the fact that Congress itself, because of the way that the states are designed and the way that we have the design of districts, not quite democratically representative, potentially going to introduce other pathological distortions, possibly worse distortions, given that the appeal to the president, this takes us back to Kevin's paper, was the idea of a democratic national constituency, as opposed to the way that Congress incorporates all kinds of democratically unrepresentative local constituencies. Great. Uh, very briefly, uh, no, I think the question is actually a terrific transition to your paper with Ash and, and Lev, which is I think that uh, there is maybe a, another way of putting it would be that if presidential administration is the lens Right. And then I say, oh, it looks like it omits the, the, the kind of uses I'm talking about. And you say, well, if we take a larger historical picture, right, then presidentialism involved both things. Right. And I think that, that that's absolutely right. And so in some sense, there is a intervention to kind of make sure w w one way uh, uh, to press that is say, yeah, we need to be thinking about all of this which is probably all part of presidentialism. And so looking historically also helps to do some of that work of not focusing on this narrower set of, uh, set of uh, things. I just want to say one other thing in response to the last question. Uh, uh, Brian Feinstein is going to be on a later panel, and he would be a great person to ask your question to. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, we, we actually have time for Dan. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so you're not going to uh, off the hook. <laughs> Yeah, I wasn't sure I fully followed. So, so the, the first possibility is that we want Congress because, you know, both parties are going to be represented there. And that that's clearly the sort of major part of the argument. 
But then I, I wasn't quite sure. It, it sounded like you were saying, well, there, there's other kinds of distortions that are reflected in, in Congress. Um, and using the term distortion, you know, wouldn't we want, <laughs> do we want Congress, you know, speaking, you know, so that we can allow those distortions? <laughs> well, if they're distortions, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, I'm in favor of it. I, I guess the point would be maybe what you're really suggesting um, is that when we, we put Congress in the mix, you know, we've got a lot of factors at, at work. We've got local kinds of concerns and um, that that we might not be happy about. And, uh, you know, that's right. Congress, it, it's Congress. <laughs> it's, it, it's not a, um, uh, it all, it isn't always pretty, but, but I, but I do think the, um, you know, so that brings to mind kind of Dick's point about the, the earmarks, but, but, um, on the other hand, it really does have virtues in the sense of, um, e- even if you have those, those other influences, in the compromise needs to happen, and um, uh, I think that's part of the cure for what it helps us. Thanks. One comment and one question. Uh, we're out of time on this panel uh, formally, so perhaps others could pick it up on other panels if, if worthwhile. But the comment is about the RAINS Act. And, you know, both of these issues about reinvigorating Congress. The RAINS Act only installs approval procedures for major rules, of which there are only several dozen every year. So. Presumably, were it enacted, the incentives would be to decrease the number of major rules. A lot of just sub-major rules, presumably, would, would get a lot of the work done, and the number of problems for Congress to wrestle with would be reduced. So, so uh, one, uh, one thing I wanted to know about the RAINS Act. And the second is, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on whether, you know, another way of reinvigorating Congress would be, uh, you know, the doing away with or substantial uh, modification of the Chevron doctrine, because what the Chevron doctrine does is create an open lane for ambiguous statutes to allow Congress to duck resolving the final resolution of those ambiguities. If it weren't for the Chevron doctrine, you know, a lot of cases would be resolved definitively by the courts. If Congress were upset with the result or the president were, then Congress would be the place to settle that. And that could help a lot. Yeah. So I, I, I would certainly get rid of the Chevron doctrine in, in, in a second. I think that's one of the things I sort of called for. Um, you're absolutely right about the, the sub-major rules. In fact, so, so th- there's a bunch of things that are sort of um, real concerns if one were to take the RAINS Act really seriously. And, and one, of, one of them is, as you point out, the, the, the sub-major rules problem. I've got a, a paper on... on that talks about this, that identifies five problems of the uh, of the RAINS Act and how you might go about sort of dealing with those those problems. So, so for example, if you if you had um, two you know minor rules on the same subject enacted within uh, a certain period of time, you might have a a strong presumption that those actually counted as one rule. Um, and, and, you know, the, the agency would have to, you know, um, overcome, uh, you know, uh, w- would need a sh- very strong argument to say, no, these are, are, are generally two different rules. So there, I mean, I, I could elaborate, but, but um, the basic point is that you could have some structures, you, you, you would need to have some judicial review in the area, but you'd have some structures um, which could sort of address those kinds of problems like the sub-major rules. 
quickly. Just one point on Chevron. I don't know that over if the court abandoned Chevron. I'm uh, not up. Just a realist point of view. Maybe channeling some of Dick's points earlier. I don't know that Congress would write more specific statutes. It seems to me uh, uh, that's a pretty open question. Great. Okay. Well, thanks to everyone on the panel, to Kevin, Michael, and Dick, and I guess. Thank you. Thank you.